iHeartRadio brings you some of the biggest podcasts of all time, like Stuff You Should Know and Stuff You Missed in History Class, plus the hottest podcasts of the last year, like the Ron Burgundy Podcast, Disgraceland, and Monster, the Zodiac Killer. Not only does iHeartRadio produce some of the most popular podcasts in the world, but now the free iHeartRadio app is the fastest-growing app for listening to your favorite podcasts. Over 280,000 podcasts, all easy to find and free to listen to on the app or anytime at iHeartRadio.com. Thank you to Jessica Lesson and the information for hosting this episode's conversation. And because we did this at the Yale Club, you may hear some audio that sounds a little different than the podcast we do inside the studio. Hi, Katie. Hello, Brian. So Marty Baron has become kind of this generation's Ben Bradley. I was going to say, he's kind of the dean of American journalism right now. Yeah, and not just because he was portrayed in the movie Spotlight by... By Liev Schreiber. Yes. Dreamy. Um, (laughs) But also because he's probably the most skillful, experienced, courageous newspaper editor in America. And at the Washington Post, he's really made a name for himself by having the courage to take on the new administration and to take on Donald Trump. Brian, you and I were completely geeking out because we got to talk to Marty at a conference that was organized by The Information, which was founded by a friend of yours, Jessica Lesson. Yeah, Jess and I went to college together, and she created— Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, your safety school, Katie, right? right. To preempt your favorite (laughs) joke. But uh, The Information is kind of a new kind of tech newsletter where people pay for content. There are no ads, and it's popular among a lot of Silicon Valley insiders— And so we talked with Marty and Jess about the future of the media industry, about D.C. and the Trump era, and of course about how technology is changing all of this. That's right. And just a few months after Marty became the top editor at The Washington Post, the paper was purchased by Jeff Bezos from its longtime owners, the Graham family. Now, you all, I'm sure, know that Jeff Bezos is Amazon.com's founder and CEO, And ever since the sale went through in 2013, I've really wondered what this transition was like and how the Washington Post is merging technology and some of the greatest journalism that's being produced today. So that was the first question I asked Marty. How has a tech owner and a tech mentality changed his job and the mission of the Washington Post? Sure. Well, it changed it uh, dramatically and immediately. So when uh, our mission uh, previously had been described as foreign about Washington, uh, certainly recognizing that Washington was the location of the nation's capital, but we, were, we had pretty much a regional focus. Uh, and when Jeff came in, uh, he said that that wasn't the right strategy for us. And he immediately changed our strategy to be focused on becoming national and even international. Uh, and, you know, he said that uh, the Internet had taken a lot of way- things away from us, obviously the protection that we had against uh, competition of all sorts, uh, but it had also given us uh, some gifts. Uh, and the primary gift that it had given us was essentially free distribution, and it would be crazy for us not to take advantage of that, particularly given the Washington Post uh, brand, uh, that it was known nationally, it was known internationally, it had the opportunity to uh, become a national news organization, And that was the fundamental change that took place for us. You know, I've always thought that the media outlet that figures out the secret sauce between technology and content was going to win the day. And I have to say, I think the Washington Post is the closest I've seen to really making that combination. And I imagine, Marty, when you started out in this business, you uh, had 
didn't have to worry about A-B testing, uh, algorithms, programmatic advertising, sponsored content, and all that jazz. How do you balance sort of technology and content? And are you worried that all these things are going to have a negative impact on quality journalism? Right. Well, it's true that I, those, uh, I didn't have to worry about those things because those things didn't exist <laughs> when I got into the business 40 years ago. Uh, and there was actually uh, the people who were involved in the newsroom really weren't involved at all on the business side. There was, uh, people talked about the wall between them. Uh, you know, there are certain things that, where we, we don't share with them, but there are other things where we actually have to collaborate. So, you know, fundamentally, I think that um, technology has just changed the way that we tell stories. Uh, and I think, I think of it as uh, the internet and all that it has brought about, all digital platforms now represent a different medium or actually different mediums for us. In the same way that when radio came into existence, there was a different way of communicating with the audience. You didn't just get up there and read a newspaper story. And when uh, television came along, uh, you didn't read a radio script and you didn't read a newspaper. There was a different way of communicating with the audience. So uh, with the internet, the newspaper industry responded by just putting up newspaper stories on the internet, and we expected to succeed that way because we just viewed it as a distribution platform. Uh, and that didn't really work very well. And then we said, well, let's do that faster. Um, and that didn't work so well either. And I think we're coming to the recognition that this is uh, a different medium or different mediums, uh, and we have to tell stories in completely different ways. But you also have to attract attention, and I'm just curious. I mean, Marty Baron and clickbait are two things that I would not put in the same sentence. So how do you, how do you come you. to terms Thank with that? Thank you for that. that. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think we do clickbait. Uh, so uh, do I think that it's... you do A-B testing? We do A-B testing, but that's not clickbait. I mean, there are... You know, I was asked uh, a few weeks ago, how do you, I was actually in Spain for a speaking engagement and, and the students there asked me, uh, how do you get people to read beyond the headlines? I said, write a good headline uh, and then they'll read more. Uh, and that's not clickbait. That is, we can write about very substantive matters, very serious matters, but we don't have to write about them in a, a stuffy way and we can certainly write about them using a more conversational, accessible style which I think is suitable for the web, and it is what we are trying to do at, at the Washington Post. And not just doing it in a different style, but using all the tools that are now available to us. So uh, displaying social media, using audio, using video, using original documents, annotating those original documents, uh, incorporating interactivity with graphics and in all sorts of other ways. Those are tools that we can use to better tell stories, and there's no reason that we shouldn't do that. And I so. guess clickbait, no, sorry, Brian, I just wanted to do one more <laughs> follow-up. I think clickbait, I guess, connotes uh, you know, enticing someone to click something and then not delivering. But I did have an interesting conversation at maybe a year or so, Marty, with your boss, Fred Ryan, who told me that when there was a headline about succession in Saudi Arabia, nobody clicked. But then when you changed it to Game of Thrones in Saudi Arabia, <laughs> Suddenly, everybody clicked on that story. So it's it, well, are you thron it's Thrones actually applies in that country, by the way. <laughs> right. So. But would you say it, it's really pushed you to be more creative in terms of how you attract consumers to the stories you're telling? I think, I think it has. It's 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 pushed us to be more creative. It's pushed us to be more colloquial. It's pushed us to talk in the way that other people talk, that ordinary people talk. Uh, and look, I mean, newspapers have a very structured style. We all, all of us who got into the business, we sort of learned that style. It was appropriate to that particular medium. And by the way, the headlines for newspapers were designed to fit into the space that was permitted. So you would have short words like 
somebody eyed something and somebody mulled something. Nobody talks that way. Nobody talks about eyeing something and mulling something and, and things like that. And those were words that were designed to fit. They uh, didn't use articles like the and a and an and things like that. Those were thrown out. Well, now we can write headlines in the way that people ordinarily speak. Uh, people can identify with that. Uh, the style of writing, I think, is, uh, sounds more authentic. I believe it is more authentic. It's more reflective of the voice of the author. You have a better sense of the personality of the author. And I think that that's all a good thing. I mean, this question could be for both of you. I mean, one change that I think technology has wrought is that particularly on social media, reporters feel a lot more comfortable using the first person singular and expressing opinions. When and where does that cross the line into bias as opposed to just having a distinctive voice? Well, I think that's very hard to define, and it's, it is risky territory. Uh, I think people want to use social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, other, Reddit, wherever it might be, to uh, reflect who they are, uh, give, give readers a sense of uh, who they are as persons, that it's not a nameless, faceless institution there. Uh, but um, they have to be careful that they, they not go out and express opinions that they would not be allowed to express actually on, in a conventional news story. Uh, and that is, that is tricky. Uh, I don't know exactly where the line is, uh, but I know that we're being monitored all the time uh, by uh, political factions out there, uh, and we hear from people when they feel that we've crossed that line, and we always, we're always constantly evaluating that. And from time to time, we have to remind people that they need to restrain themselves. But it seems to me that people do want a point of view increasingly. And, and that reporters are acting generally more like columnists these days. Um, and and I, that must be tricky, but it also, I think the market is demanding it in some ways, don't you think, Marty? Yeah, to some degree. And I think, as I said, I think people want more authenticity. They want to know who you are. They don't want just some uh, anodyne uh, presence on, on, on the web or some on AP other digital... wire report. Well, AP, I, I don't want to take it out on AP. They do, a, well, no, <laughs> they no, do quite a good say. job. But, but, uh, but I think I that um, they... Uh, I think there's a difference between, let's say, providing analysis, uh, being honest with your readers about what your conclusions are uh, based on actual factual reporting as opposed to just going out and expressing an opinion and taking sides. I, uh, and I think there's a difference. I mean, today we launched, or this will be last week, we launched Briefing, which is the information's first commentary product. And for years, our subscribers wanted not just our unique articles, but the opinions of the reporter who's covered Google for 10 years on what Google just announced. And we waited a long, we waited three years to offer it because I wanted to be able to offer a product where we had enough reporters we could get some breadth and expertise. So we have now, and it's live today, um, this will be last week, uh, briefing.theinformation.com, our first stab at this. It's, you know, our reporter's take on the day's news. And I was leery because I think there's so much just punditry and opinion or sense that to be a great journalist, you have to have a brand. So you have to be, have a, like, brand for journalism is a personality. It's trustworthiness, knowledge, sort of influence based on your experience as a reporter. So I'm interested to see where it goes for us. Let's talk about fake news, can we? I mean, is there anything that can be done about 
all these fake news stories. I know that I interviewed the guy who started Craigslist. Craig Newmark, who was here actually Craig, earlier. Hi, Craig, wherever you are. And he gave a million dollars to the Pointer Institute to try to figure out, like, should there be a good housekeeping seal of approval or something along those lines so the consumer can understand that certain journalistic practices were followed in the creation of a story. Where do you see that going, Marty? And, and uh, is there anything that can be done about it? Because some of them are so artfully done. It really is hard to tell the difference. Well, I, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to answer. I think it's a, a difficult uh, challenge, probably the greatest challenge that we face in the industry at the moment, is that there are media outlets that are uh, uh, propagating falsehoods, that are propagating uh, dangerous conspiracy theories, all of that. Um, Look, I mean, I, from our standpoint, I think we just have to do our job and root it in, in the reporting. We also do fact checks uh, constantly. Um, and we have an inordinate number of fact checks on the president at the moment. Uh, and that'll probably continue for quite some time. Uh, but also on what other, people are, what other people are saying. Now, the problem is that people who are aligned with a certain political point of view uh, are not moved by these fact checks. In fact, they view these fact checks as part of the conspiracy, as part of an effort to suppress what they're hearing from other outlets. Uh, it, is a, it is a huge challenge. I do think that the social media companies have a responsibility here, which I think they are beginning to recognize and still beginning to grapple with, and that would include Google and Facebook and uh, Twitter and some of the other What more do you think outlets. they ought to be doing that they're not doing today? Uh, well, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I think that they, they've already taken some steps to reduce the economic uh, incentives uh, for people to spread falsehoods. I think that's a, that's a good first step. Uh, they've Facebook has incorporated fact checks onto its site. I think that's at a very nascent stage and a very uncertain stage. You know, I think they're very sensitive to the free speech issues, and I'm sensitive to the free speech issues, and I'm sure you are as well. Um, but it's also dangerous not to do anything about it. And so I think we're at a very early stage where people are trying to figure out how do we, how do we grapple with this. You know, there's another definition of fake news, which is not stories that are inaccurate. It's stories that the administration doesn't agree with, even right. if they well, that's are how, accurate. That's how they, def that's, that's that's how they define fake news. Fake right. news. Right. And so how do you combat that? Or at least the perception among, you know, 40% of the country that if you write something critical of the president, you're propagating fake information. Yeah, I, it's a tough one. Um, I think that we have to be more transparent, and I think that's where the industry is going right now. Certainly what Google is pushing with its uh, trust, pro it's not really Google's project, but there's a trust project that Google is helping to support. Uh, I think it's what uh, David Fahrenthold, who just won the Pulitzer at the Post, did with his investigation of uh, Trump's uh, charitable activities, or lack thereof, as you, as you noted. Uh, is that he actually opened up his investigation to the public. He said, who else should I call? What else should I look at? Here are my notes. He actually took a picture of his handwritten notes, put them up on Twitter, and said, here's my list. Who else do you, where, where else should I go? And he enlisted the public in his investigation. And that was a very transparent uh, process. And I think we have to do more of that. I think that we have to make sure that we include original documents. I think that we have to uh, include audio of our interviews. I think that we have to uh, you know, do all those kinds of things, uh, talk a bit more about how we went about our work. I'm not saying that's a total answer. It's a possible answer. I wonder how effective, you know, Donald Trump was so effective during the course of, of the campaign, sort of repeating these mantras like crooked Hillary or 
what, what was Marco Rubio? He was uh, little, Marco. little Marco, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, but I think he was actually incredibly smart about kind of the repetitive nature of these monikers. And when he does that about the news media, fake news, I mean, I think there's a method to the madness. And I'm curious if you feel he, his delegitimization of the news media is, is going to start actually almost seeping in subconsciously into the minds of consumers so that they have even, it's going to increase the mistrust that already exists. Well, it's evident that that's already happened. I think he's actually achieved some of his goals in that regard. There was a Quinnipiac poll that showed that something like 81% of Republicans now believe that certain media outlets are the enemy of the people. Uh, there was a, just a poll that I saw this, this morning that has over a third of Republicans now believe that uh, a free press can, can be uh, more dangerous, uh, can actually be dangerous. Uh, I think that's very concerning. Now, thankfully, Democrats don't see it that way. Independents don't see it that way. Uh, but I think it's, a, it's, a, it's having a seriously corrosive effect uh, on our credibility and I think ultimately on the democratic system that so we have in this country. Uh, we do our jobs. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, the day in and day out, we just have to do our jobs. We have to present uh, actual evidence. We have to be transparent. I like to remind people that during Watergate, I was in high school at the time, but the press, the popularity, the approval of the press was at a very low state. Uh, the Washington Post was doing the investigation. Other media outlets were doing their investigation. Uh, was, the press was held in extremely low regard. The press was under constant attack from the Nixon administration. Spiro Agnew, his, his first vice president, was constantly going after uh, the press. You know, he had Nattering that nabobs nabobs of negativism, of negativism uh, uh, was one phrase. It was very uh, but there were worse. Though. It was very alliterative, but not very, not very elegant. Uh, and. Uh, but he had other more harsh words. And of course, there was an enemies list and all of that, you know, uh, leak investigations and all that sort of thing that seems very familiar today. Uh, but after uh, it was over, when Nixon had to resign, when the public knew that their president really was a crook, the, the popularity of the press really rose because it, it showed that the press had actually been doing its job, doing it courageously, doing it accurately, and doing it in spite of this demonization by the White House. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back, though, with more from Marty Baron and Jessica Lesson right after Brian reads these ads. <laughs> this season, Crate and Barrel wants you to play matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match with your gifts, that is. Good design becomes great design when it's in the hands of the right person. No more random gifts. These are matches just waiting to be made. The host you know with the most? There's a platter designed for them. Someone else on your list into entertaining? We've got glasses for that. There's even a set of spoons perfectly crafted for your next dinner date. Match them up with the right person and you've done something truly gifted. These gifts were designed with you and yours in mind, so find the ones that were made for each other. Crate and Barrel. When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. 
Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout so as a reminder, in our next couple episodes, you'll hear from Sheila Nevins, who is the president of HBO Documentary Films, and also Christy Todd Whitman, who was the first female governor of New Jersey and the former head of the EPA under President George W. Bush. And of course, as always, we want to hear from you guys. So please call us, leave a message with your questions for Sheila Nevins and Christy Whitman. Can I do the phone number, please? Yeah, of course. That's 929-224-4637. Again, that number is 929-224-4637. And if you call in the next 30 minutes, you get a set of Ginsu knives <laughs> along <laughs> with your message. I sounded a little like one of those ladies, you know. On an infomercial? No, not an infomercial. Like on a sex line? Yeah. <laughs> we, won't tell, we won't tell people about that part of your career. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you wearing? Okay, all right. <laughs> And now back to our interview with Marty Barron and Jessica Lesson. You know, it's interesting. Silicon Valley is home to some of the only institutions that people still seem to respect, even as, you know, the media goes down in public estimation, corporations, Washington, D.C. Do you think there's going to be a point at which sort of tech gazillionaires are going to become the new Wall Street bankers yeah. who are reviled rather than celebrated by I the I think public? it's happening. I mean, look at Uber. Right, um, a company that's a Silicon Valley darling, um, but you know, really in a spate of bad press, many of it of, of their own making, I believe. But I do think that there is a. Um, I do think tech CEOs are are the new bankers, and if you look at how um, you know some of these really young wealthy billionaires are treated um, and the scrutiny they get, much of it deserved. Um, you know, there's an interesting, it's, it's nice being out on the East Coast and out of the Silicon Valley bubble. And in I the think heartland here in Manhattan. In the heartland yes. of Manhattan. Yes. Where really, I, thought, exactly. I thought we were the bubble. I know. <laughs> and then I'm going to D.C. next week or later this week, I'll be in another bubble. But um, look, I, I think that there's still, it's fascinating to me how outside of Silicon Valley, the Valley is viewed. And um, there's no doubt that right now, I think there's a big gap. And there's in the sense that, the Valley is viewed as, you know, people are uh, curious, maybe a bit worried about it coming to encroach on their turf um, in tech companies, but also a lot of sense that, you know, we're living in another planet with self-driving cars and disconnected from reality. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. My advice to, to the entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley is, like, wake up and change your tone a little bit about how you're talking about things like jobs, you know, techies gloat about reducing jobs, right? And, and that's obviously, I don't think, the right narrative. So I, I think we're probably even only at the beginning of the backlash. 
Let's take a brief interlude and talk to you, Marty, about your background. Um, you grew up in Florida. You're the son of immigrants. I know that you worked on your high school newspaper, your college newspaper, Lehigh, right? Mm -hmm. So what drew you to this business? And what are the biggest changes you've witnessed since you got into the business? Uh, well, you know, what drew it to me was I, I was in a family that had come to the United States. They were keenly interested in what was happening in this country, where they had arrived. They were keenly interested in what was happening around the world. We had a, a, news, a news habit in the household, newspaper every day, the local newspaper, uh, which was the only one that you could get at that time, uh, the uh, national news with the Huntley-Brinkley report at the time, and then local news, uh, and then Time magazine every week. And that was just part of it, and we would talk about that, and, and they were keenly interested. So I became interested in all of that. You know, the changes are... There's so many changes. I mean, obviously, the Internet has been the most dramatic change. I mean, it's just changed everything about our business. Uh, we had all sorts of protections in this business before. Uh, it was very difficult to get into the business. We didn't have as much competition or all that much competition for advertising. We didn't have as much competition for readers. People, the newspapers were the only place people could get some information. Those were huge advantages. Turns out none of those advantages were actually earned. They were just gifted to us. And so, uh, and then when those advantages disappeared, uh, we had to adjust. You know, for me, it was very difficult at the beginning, I have to admit. I mean, I, like many people in my field, I sort of went through this period of mourning because you could just see staffs being cut and things like that. But at some point, you know, you have to uh, stop mourning in the same way if you were to lose a relative, a close relative or a friend. Uh, at some point, you just go on and live your life. And I, I came to that conclusion. And then you start to see, well, the, what are the opportunities? And there are incredible opportunities in this field right now. We reach more people. We can tell stories in different ways. Uh, we can tell these stories more effectively. We can show more of our work. All of these things are uh, really fantastic. And uh, for someone like me, it's, uh, it's an exciting time to be in the business. Jess, you were at the Wall Street Journal for years before uh, founding the information. Curious your reaction as, a, as an alum of the Murdoch empire to what's gone on at Fox News, and, and I'd love to hear Marty's thoughts about that as well. I mean, I, I think earlier today we had Jeff Zucker on stage, and he was talking about Fox News as sort of the administration's um, propaganda wing, and it was just sort of, when I look at it, it's just part of the look, continued polarization of our news landscape, and I think that it's problematic and there really aren't solutions. I mean, people like say, well, we'll just sort of play it in the middle or we'll be more transparent, um, put our audio online and then people will trust us more. I think people hear what they wanna hear. And so one thing that I just stay laser focused on is hiring more journalists who are doing original reporting and whose job it is to go out there and get stories that no one else is writing. And Marty's absolutely right. You know, the newsroom headcount is shrinking the information, we have the second largest technology reporting team in Silicon Valley behind Bloomberg, and we're three years old. And it's because we have a business model that's allowed us to scale and hire great journalists. So um, I, I think when I look at one outlet or another outlet or what they're doing or not, I'm just saying, are they hiring reporters who are going to write great stories? And I try to convince them those stories will drive their business. There's a sense that just great journalism isn't a good business. You have to have a fancy events business or you have to have a B2B business, or you have to something else. But our experience has been, it's a great business. We're cash flow positive, we're growing fast. So um, it's sort of zooming out how I see the landscape and 
Um, I don't pay close attention to the day-to-day at Fox News. You know, you mentioned the, the latest surveys about people's trust in the media. How concerned are you about how siloed it is? And, and as Jess said, people hear what they want to hear. A friend of mine said people are looking for affirmation, not information. I mean, just taking a look at the big picture, how worried are you for sort of the state of democracy to have so much division in this country and have really, you know, the more you think about it, in some ways, I think uh, Kellyanne Conway, this notion of alternative facts, um, it was it was kind of ridiculed initially. But in some ways, I think it's weirdly true. Yeah, well, I call alternative facts fiction, but... Um, the, but you know I what mean, I mean. I, I mean, di- different I, I, points of view. Yeah, no, I, under- I understand, and I, I'm extremely worried about it, and I've talked about this a lot. I, as I said, I think it's the greatest challenge that our industry faces, and I think it's a challenge to civil society and democracy. Uh, I think that people are drawn to sites that affirm their pre-existing point of view, and that's a concern. But when you're, when you're drawn to sites that not only affirm your pre-existing point of view, but present you with so-called information that is in fact fiction, that's completely made up, that's full of bizarre conspiracy theories, uh, that is incredibly corrosive to civil society. You have to, in order to have a democracy, you have to agree on a base set of facts. You can disagree on the analysis of the, that, that those facts. You can disagree on uh, the prescriptions for, for solving the problems of society. But fundamentally, you have to agree on a base set of facts and then work from there. Uh, and right now, we can't even agree on what happened yesterday. And that is a huge challenge to civil society. Let's talk about not the facts, but the factor. What did you make of the whole Bill O'Reilly incident? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I mean, you know, obviously, we'll yeah, well, I'm not sure I want to try too hard. Uh, <laughs> but look, I mean, I think there was good reporting that took place. Uh, the New York Times was, did a, a fine job. Were you and, jealous of uh, that Times expose? Yes, uh, I was. Uh, you know, I guess I have to be honest. Um, so, you know, we had done a lot of the work on Bill Cosby, uh, so, and they did a lot of work on, on Bill O'Reilly. So, um, but, I do, but I am jealous. I mean, I, look, I mean, I think that they appear to have done good work. It appears to have been well-documented. Uh, it had impact. Uh, it was uh, sufficiently, at least with, there was an independent, supposedly independent investigation at Fox of the actual underlying facts. And for whatever reason, whether it was commercial or because they found the, the information credible, uh, they discontinued their association with, with Bill O'Reilly. Uh, and, you know, but there's still a public out there that may continue to be drawn to him. And, and we'll have to see how that, that goes. I know we have to wrap up soon, but before we go, I do want to ask you about Peter Thiel and his sort of niche as the president's point man in Silicon Valley. I mean, he's famously contrarian. This is a very contrary position he's taken relative to others there. What's, what's been the reaction to his role? So in Silicon Valley, I mean, people didn't quite know what to make of it initially. Thought it was, you know, Peter's an investor. And so um, he, if you bet on an undervalued asset and that asset skyrocks, that value accrues to you. And so I think in the Valley, a lot of people saw his endorsement of Trump and then working for Trump first as crazy Peter position. And then, um, honestly, like a little bit of good for him for betting on the right horse. Um, I think it's notable right now, we're not hearing as much about him. And I think that is probably reflective of the fact that he 
wants to and will remain involved, but is, is pulling back probably because he got a little, some more negative reaction as well from the Trump haters. And I mean, it's just a whole mix. But besides, a, there was you know, a little bit of entrepreneurs who had taken money from him, uh, felt the need to reaffirm to their companies, Facebook did this too, that uh, you know, they believe in a, a lot of perspectives in their organization and don't want to start blacklisting investors based on their political point of views. But um, I think it's died down a little and will probably continue. Um, but we shall see. I mean, I think Peter is a fascinating guy. He has very strong point of views. And he, when he sees an opportunity to have influence, he, he'll step into it. So we'll see what happens next. And Marty, in closing, uh, what are you all doing about access and how challenging has that been? Because I know the Trump administration has invited more sympathetic news outlets to be a part of the White House press briefing, to be sort of part of informal uh, gaggles. And, and so is, have your reporters said, hey, we're just not getting access or does everybody and their brother want to talk about the infighting that's going on? in the Trump administration, and how, how are you handling all that? Well, you know, I mean, I think our reporters have a pretty good relationship with people at the White House. It's very professional, uh, as, as it should be. Uh, I think they're able, at the White House at least, they're able to reach the people they need. Uh, at the agencies, I think it's much more difficult. I think the cabinet secretaries are very nervous about uh, speaking with the press. The, our underlings are, the, the uh, bureaucrats uh, who've been there, the government workers, I should say, who've been there for a long time, who are expert in their field, are, are terrified, terrified. Uh, that they will, be, they will be fired for actually giving you background to actually help you understand an issue or that they might say something that, that doesn't uh, conform to the administration's position. I think that's very, very concerning. Uh, and it's more important that we speak to those kinds of people than necessarily that we get the, in, the infighting at the, at the White House. We also have to make sure that what we're doing is not based entirely on access, and it is not. Some journalism requires some level of access, but not all journalism requires access. It requires access to documents. It requires access to people outside of the administration. It requires our being energetic and, and aggressive in our reporting, and we're doing that work as well. Uh, we're, not, uh, we're not dependent on access to people at the White House or even in other branches of the administration. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, we uh, are totally geeking out here. We'd like we could to do have this for like another hour, hours. but I feel like... Uh, you guys have other things to do. Thank you so much, Jessica, for having us and Marty for being Thank here. You. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, as always, to our intrepid producer, Gianna Palmer, for putting together the show, to Jared O'Connell for getting to the venue super early to mix and engineer this show, and also to Nora Ritchie for additional production assistance. Last time we did a podcast, everybody spent the night at my house. So we'll have to do that again. We had a slumber party. It's true. Out at the beach, which was really fun. Uh, but I don't have room for you guys in my New York apartment. So <laughs> thanks to our social media maven, Allison Bresnick, and to Emily Bina for her part in producing the show. And Mark Phillips, thank you, as always, for our catchy theme music. 
Katie Couric and I are our executive producers. And remember, you can email us at comments at couricpodcast.com. Find Katie on social media. She's at Katie Couric on Twitter and Instagram, katie.couric on Snapchat, and I'm at goldsmithb on Twitter. Best of all, you can rate and review us. On Apple Podcasts. Yes, but only if you have nice things to say. I'm very sensitive. Yeah. And don't forget to subscribe as well. Thank you so much for listening. John said that on my tombstone, you know what it's going to say? Thank you so much. Because <laughs> that's apparently what I say all the time. And sorry. But by the way, I'm getting cremated. And he said he was going to spread my Wait, ashes. Like all soon? <laughs> no, no, no. Hopefully not soon. Yeah. He was going to spread my ashes all over the country because in death as in life, I was spread too thin. That's Isn't beautiful. that touching? And he also assumes he's going to be alive when you die. <laughs> I know. Oh, John there's so much, much wrong much with this. Older there's, than you are, there, no, he's not. He's six years younger. I'm a yeah, cougar. No, I know. I was trying to help you, <laughs> anyway. Katie Cougar. All right, we digress. The bottom line is, we really appreciate your listening. Thank you so much, and we'll talk to you next time. When it comes to sports, history doesn't change, or does it? Come find out on the Special Teams Podcast, which is now available. I'm Jason Smith. And I'm Mike Harmon. Together, Jason and I are looking back at the most compelling teams in sports history, why we rooted for them or against them as they achieved their title of best of the best. You'll remember the big moments and maybe become aware of some you didn't know. Each episode features a different team, and we just know you're going to love it. Check out Special Teams right now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.